what we'd like to do is to divide this presentation up into three parts. I'm going to give a little bit of background on the Texas Advanced Directives Act, specifically the portion of that act, that law, that deals with medical futility review. I'll be followed by Dr. Castriata, who will speak a little bit to our particular process at Herman, our policy, how it works, and then give you some information on the summary of cases that have gone through medical futility review. He will be followed by Greg Hoosier. We're very happy to have Greg because he is the one who has truly, for a very long time, and he'll tell you how long, been in the trenches in the writing of this law and presently chairing a coalition in Austin that is dealing with the challenges to the law. <coughs> I'd like to start first to give you a couple of examples about the types of cases that we are talking about just to solidify this issue of medical futility or medical inappropriateness. And these two cases come from our list of cases. So these are true cases that we dealt with, have dealt with at Herman over the past six years since the law was founded, since the law was enacted. So the first was a case of a 95-year-old with the problems that you can see. She was hospitalized after a massive bleed, many, many health problems. The daughters, and this is the point, three daughters, insisted on continued aggressive treatment even after six weeks of hospitalization. The family later told us that other family members who were very old had died while working in their garden or while cooking Thanksgiving dinner. And they were absolutely not about to let this patient die by stopping life support. So they said no to the doctor when he approached them about the fact that it was time to stop. The second case involves a nine-year-old child. Both of these were reviewed years ago by our, the Medical Futility Review Committee at Herman. So the second case was of a nine-year-old boy with acute leukemia. He had been transferred to us from MD Anderson. He relapsed, had an IVH, went into a coma, uh, respiratory failure after herpes pneumonia. And the parents said to us, they were Turkish, and we were communicating with them through an interpreter, that they were absolutely unable to stop life support on their child and that they never would under any circumstances. So those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of cases that we're talking about. Very briefly then, autonomy versus the right to demand treatment. Sometimes the concept of autonomy gets a bit skewed. The concept of autonomy absolutely does not, under any circumstance, require the physician to practice outside of the standard of care or outside of his or her ethical perspective. So physicians are never obligated, not legally, morally, or ethically, to provide treatment it is outside of medical standards. Just as physicians cannot compel patients to receive treatment, patients and their surrogates cannot force physicians to do something that they feel is outside of the standard of care or that is medically inappropriate. This concept is explicitly supported by Texas law, especially since the Texas Advanced Directives Act was enacted in September of 99. It was revised in 2003 with some minor revisions. 
The law reflects compromises between right to life and hospice concerns. And key in this whole issue is the fact that Texas is still the only state in the United States that provides a legal safe harbor for physicians who stop life support if they deem it to be medically inappropriate. Now, why Texas is a question that often comes up, and I'll give you a little bit of information about why Texas. But the term feudal is not in the law. It is never mentioned in the law, and that's really important. The term used is medically inappropriate. So let's look at a comparative table. Other states are working on this. A number of states are looking to Texas as the model. Look at California, Virginia, and Tennessee. And these are not the only states that are working on something that will allow legal protection for the physician who wants to stop treatment when it's considered medically inappropriate. So the reason for refusal, medically ineffective, medically or ethically inappropriate, reasons of conscience are medical inappropriate. What's the obligation to inform an attempt to transfer in California? to inform an attempt to transfer in Virginia, to promptly inform and transfer, not even attempt to transfer, in Tennessee. But the point is, and the issue is, what happens when that transfer is not possible? So look at the time limit then. Texas is the only state in the country that outlines a number of days after which the physician and facility are no longer obligated to provide treatment deemed medically inappropriate until transfer can't be accomplished, not less than 14, until transfer can't be accomplished. But Texas is the only state that says 10 days, and then the physician is legally protected. So how Texas got here, I will very briefly tell you. Once again, I am reminded that Greg Hoosier, our third speaker, lived through all of this. But it really began in 1988, when a number of people involved in ethics throughout Houston got together to share knowledge and experience about ethical issues, ethical problems, especially medical futility, which came up more and more in 92. There was much more information in the literature about medical futility around 92. And then in 93, Lundberg published an article in JAMA that urged physicians to develop guidelines to identify futal care and eliminate it. Now, those are strong words, identified and eliminated. Um, for over 2,000 years ago, um, people were urged by Hippocrates and others following him not to treat those who were overmastered by this disease. So medical futility is certainly not a new concept. So in 93, there were, um, this is, is when things really heated up in the Houston area, and there was a draft policy that was published in JAMA. Five hospitals, and this is one of the hospitals, adopted the policy but did not enact it. And the clear reason is because there was no legal protection at that time. It was a draft policy, that's all, a community standard. Meanwhile, right to life proponents violently objected to what they called involuntary euthanasia and became very active in the legislative process. Again, this is when Mr. Hoosier was very involved in this. In 97, George Bush, who was the governor at the time, 
vetoed a bill to change the law because Right to Life said there's not enough in here that would prevent physicians from stopping life support against families' wishes. So people went back to the drawing board at George Bush's urging. And in 98, representatives of 40-plus groups, and this was the Texas Advanced Directives Coalition that still exists and that is still chaired by Greg Hoosier, met to revise the law on end-of-life issues. And so that's how Texas got its law. In 1999, the act was signed into law by Bush. All sides agree. That's a key point. In 99, all sides agree. He said, I won't sign it if all sides don't agree. And the law grants immunity to physicians if the due process is followed. So how the process works is as follows. Very, very briefly, this is directly from the law 166.046 of the act. The physician's refusal to honor an advanced directive or treatment decision shall be reviewed by an ethics or medical committee. Very little is said about that committee. But if the doctor says, I don't think this is medically inappropriate and I won't provide the treatment, he can say that, but the law requires due process after that. The due process conflict resolution is about this. It looks cold and brief. It's really not. But the family must be given patient or surrogate. Almost always it's the surrogate. Almost always the patients involved in these issues cannot speak. A two-day notice before the meeting, an opportunity to attend the meeting, written information on the right to transfer, other written information that includes now, as of December, Texas Right to Life, and attorneys that is required by the law that we provide that information to families when we give them this notice, and then a written conclusion of the review. So these are the requirements. If the committee agrees with the attending physician who is presenting the information, the medical facts about the case, if the committee agrees, then life-sustaining treatment may be stopped after a 10-day waiting period. The physician and the facility must assist in transfer efforts if requested to do so. In a number of the cases, as you'll see, families didn't want to transfer. They just didn't want life support to be stopped. A number of them said, if you have a process, if you have a law, use it. I'm just not ever telling you that it's okay to stop life support. And there is no civil or criminal liability if the physician and the facility are compliant with the due process steps. So now Dr. Castriata will talk about our specific cases. 